The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. James Carl Nelson, uh, welcome back to Can't Make This Up. Thanks for having me again. Oh, very glad to have you back. It's been a couple of years. Last time you were here, uh, you were talking about your book, uh, The Polar Bear Expedition. Expedition. Right. right. Um, and you're back again with another World War I book, uh, The York Patrol. Um, yes. It's getting old, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, World War I is fascinating. Five of them now. So. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it's unfortunately overshadowed by World War II, I think, by a lot of people. But World War um, I's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I think, though, a lot of people of my age, I'm almost 65, are, have awakened to what their grandfathers or great uncles have ever went through over there. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot more interest, I think. I bet. I bet. Um, so uh, for people um, who haven't had the chance to listen to your first episode uh, uh, with us here, uh, could you just uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got into writing uh, about World War One? Sure. Um, I'm a longtime former journalist, um, and it all started really with my grandfather, who uh, was in the first division as a Swedish immigrant, and uh, was sent back to France, attached to the first division, fought in one battle, got shot, bullet rang off his spine, and left him laying on the ground unconscious until the next morning when he was rescued by some French colonial uh, stretcher bearers. And he lived another 75 years. And he had that one small story that uh, always fascinated me. And uh, as I got older and better able to process, uh, you know, I thought I thought of it a lot through my life, what, we, what he went through. But I never really knew who he was with. I mean, you know, for a while, I thought he was with the Swedish Army. Um, so I just started researching it. And in the process, I found a muster roll at the uh, First Division Museum in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. And they had all this name, these names on it of people I'd never heard of. Uh, they were from his unit, Company D of the 28th Infantry in the 1st Division. And I just started thinking, I don't know, maybe there's a story here. So I started running down as best I could uh, those names and uh, turned into the remains of Company D, my first book. And then five lieutenants followed. That also uh, centered on the 1st Division, and that grew out of remains of Company D. And then I did I Will Hold about the uh, Marine legend uh, Clifton Cates, who started out as a second lieutenant and wound up uh, becoming a commandant to the Marine Corps. And the Polar Bears, the, the 339th Regiment, was sent into northern Russia in 1918-1919. Uh, and then, yeah, now we have the York Patrol. Uh, so the full title um, is The York Patrol, The Real Story of Alvin York and the Unsung Heroes Who Made Him World War I's Most Famous Soldier. Uh, and, and I guess let's start there. Let's, let's start at the end. Um, you know, the York Patrol is a name that I think is, um, might be recognizable to a certain generation and might be completely unrecognizable to a different one. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why the name Alvin York is so famous to uh, some folks? Well, I think a big thing was, I mean, I grew up watching the, the movie Sergeant York at least twice a year in Chicago. They ran it on uh, 
WGN family classics with Fraser Thomas. And so I was well familiar with the, with the movie and, you know, the movie's a bit hokey and everything, but uh, so, and I was well aware of uh, Sergeant York. He died in 1964. And even before he died, when at a late age, you'd see his name in the papers occasionally, you know, uh, but at one time, uh, following World War I, he was one of the most famous people in the world, not just in the United States. Um, and his, his fame was in, in, endured throughout his life, uh, whether he liked it or not. He was just, you know, the most famous doughboy of all time. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I was well, I was familiar through the movie uh, with him as a, as a character, as a historic character. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it really occurred to me that much, even though some of the characters, the real life characters showed up in the movie and never, nobody ever really focused on what, what their role was. Uh, there were 16 other men who uh, were with York when he, uh, on October 8th, 1918, when the legend was that he single-handedly captured 132 Germans and 35 machine guns. That's not true. And, and that uh, lends itself well to Hollywood. Oh yeah. And I mean, and you know, and you know, I started out the book by noting that there were 13 men who performed deeds on October 8th, 1918, uh, that earned them medals of honor. And, you know, the question became uh, not just wanting to flesh out who the men were that were with them, but why does York, of all those people, why York come out of that as the most famous doorway? So the book uh, looks at that too. Okay, so let's, um, we'll, we'll start with him because he is, um, you know, he gets the name recognition at least. Um, you know, what can you tell us about Alvin York uh, before World War I? Well, he was uh, very poor uh, from a large family in Fentress County, northeastern Tennessee. Um, he was, uh, you know, he, he went, hunted with his dad, uh, hence his, he was renowned as crack shot, you know, which came in handy uh, that morning. Um, but he was a poor, you know, hillbilly farmer and uh, never left the county until he was drafted. Uh, but the backstory is he was a hellraiser too, like in his 20s, a drinker, fighter, gambler. Um, but he had a come to Jesus moment probably in about 1915. He joined a local uh, a fundamentalist church and straightened out his ways, found God and uh, came to Jesus and and that is the, the backstory, I think, is what made him sexy as the, the world's most famous doughboy was he had this backstory when he gets to Camp Gordon in Georgia in 1917. He, uh, he has a, an attack of conscience because, you know, he's fundamentalist and what's the first commandment? Thou shall not kill. So he's just like, I don't I don't think I can kill another man. It goes against my beliefs, you know. So he wrestled with that and his commanding officers were actually pretty nice about it. They they argued, or let's say they talked, discussed the issue. Um, they tried to convince him, uh, you know, they didn't just throw him in the brig, you know, uh, they tried to convince him. Um, they, meanwhile, his pastor back home had petitioned uh, the uh, government to declare him a conscientious, conscientious objector, something that York's been tagged for, but he, he came out uh, after the war and he just said, you know, I just wanted to know what it was all about. I, I wasn't a CEO. Um, I wasn't refusing to fight. I just wanted to know what this here fighting's all about, you know, in his cloak with a way. Um, he didn't, he knew very little of the world. So uh, that is what made him, uh, that, that, that backstory contrasted with the scene where he's shooting Germans one by one 
on the tally was some people say 25, I think few, fewer. Um, and then the surrendering of the Germans. So he turned out to be, you know, one of the better or the best fighter in World War One on the American side. So last transition, that, that does make a, a really compelling character. Yeah, it does. Yeah. You know, just a contrast there, you know. Yeah. So your book is about, you know, much more than just him. Um, so who were who some of the doughboys that made up the, um, and forgive me if I get this wrong, uh, Company G of the 328th Infantry 82nd Division? That's right. And, uh, well, there was uh, Bernard Early, who was actually the leader of the, the patrol that famous morning. He was acting sergeant. Um, Otis Merrithew was a corporal, like uh, York was an acting corporal. He wasn't actually a sergeant until after the battle. Um, Percy Beardsley, sort of patrician farmer from Connecticut. There were a, a number of um, Eastern Europe immigrants, um, Joe Konatsky and some others. Um, and there were some, a couple of Italians. Uh, so it was a real typical makeup of the doughboy outfit in World War I in the American Expeditionary Force. There was something like 30 or 35% were immigrants, including my grandfather. Um, and otherwise, they were from farms, some from small towns. Bernard Early was from New Haven, Connecticut. Um, there's a few from the South, uh, like uh, York. Um, and, and the 82nd Division was known as the All-American Division because they had uh, men from 44 states in it. So when within the patrol, they're from New York, Massachusetts, uh, Tennessee, of course, Virginia, um, and a couple of Pennsylvanians. Um, so it was a, you know, for its time, considering that there weren't any, uh, there were no black people in the 82nd division. Um, it was the, but it was sort of a melting pot. And it's sort of reflective of the early 20th century. Um, and did it just shake out that way or was that by design? Uh, well, they were all draftees. I think it just pretty much shook out that way. You know, I mean, and you could say the same for uh, my grandfather. He trained at Camp Grant, northwest of Chicago. And uh, yeah, I mean, there was Poles and Germans, and, you know, farm boys. And he was, you know, a Swedish immigrant painter. Uh, you know, so it was just, I think it was just almost random. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so if we can... Um back up a little bit and and take a, a broad view uh can you kind of recap for us the the great war up until this point um you know what's america's involvement and in what situation is is york and and company g walking into okay yeah well at this point october 8th 1918 uh the great uh, Meuse argonne offensive is occurring um they've jumped off nine american divisions headed north into a really rough terrain in the Argonne on September 26, 1918. Um, those units fought for about four days and made some good progress until they started meeting heavier resistance. And some of those units that had originally jumped off got swapped out, like the 35th Division was moving up the east bank of the Air River and they got stymied at a village called Exermont on the right bank of the Air. And the 1st Division, which had by then been in uh, three pretty big battles, uh, took over for them to continue the advance. On the left of the air, on the west bank of the air, there was the 28th Division was, was attempting to move north. It's left on the far end of the American line 
in the West was the 77th Division. So what occurred, number one, was mixed battalions of the 77th Division uh, under Colonel uh, uh, Whittlesey, famous character to himself, um, pushed too far and got cut off from the main body of the 77th Division and became the famous Lost Battalion. And they were besieged and attacked by Germans for days on end. Germans using flamethrowers and grenades and all sorts of that. Um, and so they wanted, the, the, the American command wanted to rescue them, number one. Number two was the first division made good progress for two days, taking Hill 240, pushing north into the Romaine Hills until German artillery on the west bank of the air uh, and a little bit to the north started uh, just laying down such barrages they couldn't move anymore. So they ordered a pause there. So the, the command came up with this idea of uh, pretty much getting taking care of two birds with one stone. That's not too cliched. They decided to send a division west below the first division and above the 28th division. And for it sort of force its way west as far as it could get to relieve the uh, 77th division and uh, to force the uh, German artillery to pull back and so the first division could move. So on October 7th, the uh, 164th Brigade uh, of the uh, 82nd Division attacked to the west and uh, took Hill 180 uh, and then took part of Hill 223 just west of Chateau Chéry's village. And before the fighting ended, okay, so it brings us to Elvin York and the 2nd Battalion of uh, the 328th. They took up the advance six o'clock on the morning of October 8th, and they ran into incredible resistance from the front and to the left. Um, the platoon commander, Lieutenant Kirby Stewart, was killed during the advance, and they needed to uh, do something fast because men were falling like flies. And so the Harry Parsons, the sergeant uh, who took over, called Bernard Early and his squad over and said, you know, I want you to go over to the left over that hill there and work your way around and see if you can't eliminate these machine guns that are holding us up. And so that brought um, early in York, all 17 men um, into the German lines. They got behind the German lines without being seen. And then they eventually encountered a large force of Germans that were preparing to go into battle uh, just behind the scenes, a little bit on the right flank. And that's when uh, the York event occurred. <laughs> no, it's uh, the, uh, the, Amer the Germans had no idea how many Americans there were. There were probably about 90 Germans there. And there were, among them were machine gunners that were firing out on the plane um, at the advancing 328th Infantry. But uh, the Germans were surprised, the Americans were surprised, and uh, finally a few shots rang out and, uh, and uh, the Germans basically surrendered to early. And early just said, hey, okay, let's go round, round these guys up and get them out of here. And as they were doing that, lining them up and uh, disarming them, uh, Germans unseen above them fired their machine guns and immediately killed six of the members of the York Patrol. That's like one third of the patrol right in a moment. And uh, so everybody hit the dirt and most of the men who were guard and prisoners just used them for cover. And because the Germans were at, at risk too. So they were crouching down. They didn't want to get hit by their own fire. Some of them were. And uh, York was a little bit in the center, uh, 
fairly hidden uh, in some brush and behind his own gaggle of Germans. And as the Germans kept firing, he kept looking for targets and eventually killed, I don't know, a dozen, maybe, maybe 15, 20. Um, and the whole episode maybe lasted 10 minutes and it ended when uh, Lieutenant Fritz Endress, one of the German lieutenants, led a bayonet charge of uh, five other men down the hill towards York. And York uh, picked them off one by one, starting with the left of the line so that uh, nobody could see the man ahead of him fall. He claimed that that's how he had learned that tactic in uh, Tennessee hunting turkeys. So he shot, killed five of the guys, and then he, he uh, mortally wounded Fritz Endress, shot him in the belly. And then once again, they began rounding people up. Well, I should interject that the commander, uh, Paul Vollmer, German commander, uh, I was pretty shocked to see his friend laying there writhing on the ground. And he went up to York and he said, if uh, you stop shooting, uh, I'll, I'll make everybody surrender because there was kind of a lull that occurred. Uh, and so they once again began disarming, rounding up, and they basically brought this large group of Germans back the way they had come pretty much and uh, surrendered them, wanted to surrender them at 320 uh, infantry headquarters back on Hill 223. Uh, they were told they don't, don't, didn't have any stockades or any, any way to, to do, deal with that. So they wound up marching them all the way back to Varen, a few miles south down the road. And when he got there, the brigade commander, Julian Lindsay, said uh, to York, uh, York, I hear you have captured the whole German army. And York said, no, I only have 132. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I can bring the story forward. I mean, the, the, the 82nd Division continued fighting through the month, including York and everybody else who wasn't dead yet. Um, I should notice that, note, too, that in that blast of fire in the ravine, uh, Bernard early noticed Merrithew wounded. Um, it's kind of key to the story later on. Anyway, so they continued fighting through October. So the war ended on October 31st, 1918 for the, the 82nd Division. And word started getting around about this feat that, you know, York you captured the whole German army. And uh, so they started looking into it and he was awarded a Distinguished Service Cross first. Uh, the story had better legs than that. And they looked into some more, investigated. And he was uh, ultimately awarded uh, on the recommendation of John Pershing, the AEF commander, a Medal of Honor. And in the meantime, a Canadian writer named George Patello, who had uh, been over, over there covering the boys for quite some time. He started out covering Canadians because he was, he was Canadian, uh, mostly for Saturday Evening Post. Um, he was in the U.S. when the war ended on November 11th, but he returned to Europe right after that. And he was riding in a truck with somebody. That's the story. That's what he said. And somebody happened to mention York and his feet. And he knew uh, he had a real scoop there. You know? um, so he hunted down York. And with the permission of the 82nd Division, I mean, who doesn't want you know, the, the guys to look like heroes? He interviewed York. He uh, looked at the affidavits that uh, half a dozen men had given from the patrol, uh, basically supporting York. Although a lot of them said they couldn't really tell what was happening. Um, and wrote up the story and it ran in the April 26, 1919 Saturday Evening Post, which had a circulation of 2 million at the time. And by the time York got back to the US in May of 1919, the story had 
blazed across the U.S. and got picked up by all sorts of newspapers everywhere. And the headline was usually something like lone soldier, you know, kills and captures an entire battalion, you know, something like that. Um, so he got, you know, he got to New York and found that he, he was a huge hero. I don't think he knew that until then. So it, you know, if I were to go back in time to October 7th, 1918 and, and i was walking around asking for the york patrol nobody would know what i was talking about no he wouldn't even know i don't think you'd even know the early patrol i mean I, you know so like i say bernard early was initially in command so right so no yeah no but but um, it becomes yeah. known as the as the york patrol and and how you know how does because it's a, it's a group effort it's a whole company how, how does everyone else in the unit feel about this they didn't feel real good about it <laughs> Um, but you know what, like I say, I mean, they uh, gave affidavits, half a dozen of them did. Um, and, you know, there were some said, yeah, you know, York was a good fighter. He, he did what, what they say he did and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I say what was key about the Merrithew and uh, early uh, being severely wounded was they weren't interviewed or they, they did not uh, give affidavits. I don't know what they would have said if they had. I mean, early would gave one much later. Um, but Marathew never was. And he kind of embodied the whole spirit of we we need to get some credit for this too. It wasn't just York. We were there. And you can imagine how they felt, you know. I mean, they were part of the attacking force and the, you know, oh, yeah. the, the ones who weren't wounded helped bring all the prisoners back. So um, you know. I would say Bernard Early was quietly uh, critical of the story of York as a one-man army. He let his uh, friends' proxies talk for him in the papers beginning in the early 20s. Matthew didn't say a word until 1928, and then he had actually gone into the service under the name William Cutting. And then he identified himself as Otis Matthew, who had served with York, and he, you know, basically went to the newspapers and uh, said, you know, the way this York story is told isn't true. There were a bunch of us there. We all did our part. Um, and so, you know, and York himself, I mean, he, you know, he, he never said, yeah, I did it all myself. It's just sort of the story just took legs uh, of, a, of their own, you know. Um, so, so he didn't push this on his own. No, no, no. You know, he even said in a 1941 radio broadcast, he said, look, you know, I never said I did all this by myself. You know, it's just the, and you know, George Patello had mentioned, um, a number, basically almost, yeah, he, he mentioned all the other members of the patrol, um, including the six who died. Um, and, but he really did focus on number one, the, the, the story that was titled The Second Elder Gives Battle, referring to York's status in the church back in Fentress County. Um, so he focused on that sexy backstory of, of being a CO, although York said he wasn't a CO, conscientious objector. Uh, and then the, the actual feats and, you know, the 132 Germans and 35 machine guns, which was pure fiction. Uh, but I think it's actually in York's uh, Medal of Honor citation. I think, I think it is. You know, the, German, the Germans did their own investigation uh, after a Swedish newspaper ran a story about York in 1928. And uh, one of the Germans said, you know, I, one of the commanders said, you know, I don't think there were 35 machine guns of ours in that entire sector that morning, you know, so, um, and nobody mentioned 
carrying back machine guns or anything like that. But so there was, there was uh, definitely some embellishment as usual, right? So, but, you know, um, my book doesn't, you know, doubt uh, that, uh, in my opinion, I think York, what he did is he saved everybody's bacon. He saved the patrol's bacon by pinning these Germans down and ultimately uh, with the shooting of Fritz Endress, ultimately getting the Germans to give up. So that, you know, how many were killed, whatever. And then my book is about the process by which he became this big international hero. I mean, he was probably the most famous person in the world for quite a while. It's this difference between a, a real world hero and then an action movie star. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. And then, well, sure. You know, so then, and York, to his credit, I mean, you know, he, uh, he, he always said he, he got approached with movie offers, book deals, all sorts of stuff in the wake of this. And he always said, you know, I'm not sorry, this uniform's not for sale. He didn't want anything. And uh, which is probably good because the local Rotary Club uh, bought a farm for him. And uh, after when he got home, the problem is they only paid for half of it. And so he got stuck with the rest of the mortgage and he wouldn't <laughs> take any money from anyone. So by 1921, he was on the brink of ruin. <laughs> he got bailed out, not, not for the last time. He had to get bailed out by, you know, people who were sending him, you know, dollar bills through newspaper campaigns and stuff like that. Um, but then uh, Tom Scahill, uh, tried, this Australian writer, cajoled and wheedled and got York to tell his story and convincing them because York wanted to build schools and improve the living uh, standards and educational standards in his local uh, area. And he said, you know, can take the money and build this, uh, a bunch of schools with it, blah, blah. So York finally acquiesced and this book came out uh, called his own you know, diary and war, diary and war diary. I have it every summer, but anyway. And um, I think he got like 40,000 bucks for that, something like that. Um, Which is a big chunk of money. That was a good chunk of money. Yeah, but I mean, like I say, he, he did pour it back into uh, building schools and stuff. Um, and then there's another book came out um, actually before that, which was more about the people of his, of his area. It was, wasn't really focused. He didn't want to focus on his uh, feet there in the Aragon. And then finally, he was convinced to uh, do, uh, do a movie, uh, you know, to um, have uh, be portrayed on the silver screen. And Gary Cooper, probably the most famous American actor at that time, a screen idol, portrayed him and won an Academy Award. Um, he did get money for that too, but typically he, uh, he only paid so much to the IRS. He said, that, that's enough. I've that's, given him enough, that's enough. So they came after him and it lasted well into Can the I do that? <laughs> you go have a, have a go at it. Um, <laughs> so he was poor with money. And part of one of the elements of that is that the church frowned on wealth. You know, that the, the church he belonged to, his beliefs. So it was kind of like, well, it wasn't good to have money. You know, that was a real, uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, it's, it's physical wealth was not good. Spiritual wealth is more important. So, so I think he was a little torn there. Uh, but, you know, he had only had like two years total um, in his whole childhood of any kind of formal education. And he wasn't stupid, but, you know, he, he was, when he went off to war, like I say, he had never left the county before, and you know, all of a sudden he's in Georgia, and then he's in New York, and then he's in England, and he's in France. So that really opened up his eyes, though, to uh, and caused him to want to improve the lot of the people back home in uh, Ventress County. 
just so he, he was changed by his experience uh, over there. Um, and did he have any any major regrets of, of having to have killed in war? Because um, yeah, know, that came you know, up. Uh, that came up after uh, you know he wrestled with his uh, conscience while at Camp Gordon. They, they sent him. They sent him home for uh, ten days to think about it, and you know, pretty much decide what, what he's going to do. I guess the only option was going to be he's going to pick up a gun or be a CO. I guess so he finally uh, was convinced and convinced himself that it was okay. And actually, they interviewed his pastor uh, when York got home, and he was kind of worried how his pastor would feel about it, having killed and everything. And they, you know, they they said that he had to, he did what he had to do, um, so had no qualms about it. I don't think York ever had any qualms about it. Uh, by the time World War II ran, rolled around, he was very uh, pro-war. Uh, he, he was. Uh, he had newspaper columns and things like that. Uh, and so he was uh, didn't have to be convinced about uh, the U.S. going in, into that war. All right. Well, well Jim, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, and, Thanks for your interest. I appreciate it. Again, the book is The York Patrol. Um, if someone wants to uh, learn more about um, York and Company G, uh, and the book is a, is a really good kind of you're on the ground with them, very action-packed read. Uh, if someone wants to learn more about you or the book, where can they go? Go to Amazon. You know, uh, I've got a James Carroll Nelson Facebook page. I haven't updated it too much lately. Just got, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I'm Google me, James Carroll Nelson. I'm all over the place. And, uh, you know, I did like 50 interviews for the polar bear expedition. So. Those are available, a lot of those. Uh, yeah, I'm out there, believe me. Awesome. Well, um, thanks again for coming on, and uh, hopefully we'll see you again some uh, sometime again. Sounds good. Thanks much.